It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Suplex. Retweet. Wake up your mind. It's Tuesday. You know what that means. Yes, it's a new feature show here on the Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet Podcasting Network. I'm your host this week, Stephen Wilson, and we've got a, a very special show this week as we'll be looking back on the career of the late, great Ronnie Lee slash Luke Harper. Uh, nearly one year on from his unfortunate uh, passing we are going to delve into what was a stellar career that he had not just in WWE and his brief run in AEW we're also going to be looking a wee bit back on his pre-NXT run where he was where he brought the Brody Lee character to life in instance until then obviously becoming Luke Harper when he moved to the Fed for seven years and then his final year in 2020. For this particular show, uh, I asked for the Wyatt family of panellists. Instead, I have 2019 Dark Order. I've got David Hockney and Grant McRobbie with me, gents. How are you? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's good to be here and it's good to be along with the, the Eric Rowan of ESSR talking about the, the great Brody Lee. <laughs> I mean, Stephen's more like, a, like an Aldi version of, of him. You know, complete botch for mania. <laughs> Could you imagine what Aldi Eric Rowan would look like? Oh my it's god! <laughs> he looked like the guy that was uh, mistaken for Rowan in that Brian Roman who done it sort of story. Remember, there was that that random bald guy with the ginger beard. Oh yeah, that angle it went. Oh, yeah, that that's Poundland Rowan. Oh, Jesus, oh, god, I erased that memory from my mind. <laughs> but yeah, that's. Um, Interesting enough, right? Before we obviously get into the topic of today's show, just the usual housekeeping from us here. You can find us on all good uh, podcasting networks. Obviously, the one you're listening listening to us on right now, and also uh, Spotify, iTunes, any of them. You're up. We're on it. Just search for Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Uh, we're also on the social media channel. Oh, no, that's, uh, yeah, social media channels: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Suplex Retweet, and. Also, you can catch us on YouTube. We've got loads of shows on there as well. Just search Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet online. You can find all our stuff there, including our website, eatsleepsuplexretweet.com. Uh, right. I think it's time that we get into the topic and talk about Brody Lee. Now, Brody Lee was born on December 16, uh, 1979 in New York. Uh, <laughs> and he made his debut uh, in 
professional wrestling in October of 2003. Now, most people are a bit rusty in terms of the early days of the Brody Lee character, but uh, Grant, well, talk firstly about the name Brody Lee, where he got it from. An amazing uh, fact that I found when I was researching this show, I wasn't quite sure where he got the name from, but it was based on the Kevin Smith film Mall Rats, and he combined two of the actors' names, uh, or <laughs> an actor and a character from that one. Uh, the character was Brody Bruce, and the actor was Jason Lee, better known to many people as uh, Earl from My Name is Earl. Now, that comparison I find is really interesting because if you look at him, it does look a bit like Jason Lee. Oh yeah, you can totally see like looking at like um like an old picture like um two thousand and eight uh Chikara and you know, like it, it almost looks unrecognisable from the man that we ended up with um in WWE and that, but you can definitely see like the the Jason Lee comparisons and well, I'm a Kevin Smith fan as well, so I particularly really liked the the nod to Mole Rats. I was quite big on that. Never seen the film myself. Uh, I don't don't think I've watched too many Kevin uh, Smith films. Uh, it's probably something I should do a lot more because the ones I've seen have been pretty good. I just remember the story I heard about Kevin Smith about being told when he was on an airplane that he had to move seats because he was affecting the dynamics of the plane. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've heard that before. Yeah, it's uh, but now the only Kevin Smith film I've really seen are the Jane Silent Bob movies with the or Clerks. That's the other one. Well, that's some of the better, but the good ones. So it's a good start. Uh, I've, I've just seen that picture from uh, Shikaran uh, 2008 as well. I swear he looks so different compared to, you know, what he looked like in like WWE and AEW. Like his beard is a lot shorter and his hair is a lot shorter. He looks much more. He looks almost like um, almost looks like Skeet Ulrich a little bit. But he's, he's, he had the vest. The vest was something he had for a while. <laughs> you know, the vest was a big part of his character eventually, uh, as he would go through the indies but uh, Dave in terms of his uh, his training he debuted as a he first got to wrestling as a backyard wrestler so not the traditional way a lot of people do like kind of but he was trained by two men who I'm going to be honest I've never heard of uh, Kirby Marcos and Rick Matrix but one man I have remembered Dave I'm not too sure you might be familiar with him before your time Tony Mameluk I know who Tony Mameluk is from the the full-blooded Italians in ECW yeah Never made it to the WWE one, really. I don't think he really well, got there. Well, little Guido definitely did there, but I'm not sure Tony Mamaluke got as much exposure. But I am aware of who he is, and I think pretty sure he came back for the WWE ECW sort of time. And uh, funnily enough, at the same time when Brody Lee was getting involved with backyard wrestling, he was doing it. Uh, he was competing under the ra- the ring name Huber Boy Number Two, uh, with none other than WWE ECW's resident super jobber Colin Delaney like I never thought I'd see these two like crossing paths let alone at the time you know where it was sort of the mid 2000s and obviously Colin Delaney was just moved to the ECW brand at that point and during that time John Huber Brody Lee is still just getting into wrestling as under the backyard sort of banner I mean, you talk about Colin Delaney there, Dave, he was quite a... They, they did a lot of work together, especially when they were in Chikara. Uh, they were a, a trio. It was Brody Lee, Colin Delaney, who was, he was an 
part of the Olsen twins at a particular point, Colin Delaney and uh, Jimmy. Jimmy, oh. uh, Jimmy Olsen, not, not Mary Kate and Ashley. Not Mary Kate and Ashley, no. Not, uh, <laughs> not uh, Wanda from the Marvel films, no. no. She was there, but they were a part of that. They were scheduled to be in the 2008 King of Trios tournament as Team Dr. Keith. But Colin <laughs> Delaney got signed by WWE at that point. And yeah, that was that was the end of that particular one. Uh, but Grant, uh, the, using the name Brody was interesting because it led to the beginning of what would be a lot of uh, comparisons with uh, the, the late great Bruiser Brody in terms of his look, his style, you know, and when you're just coming into the wrestling world, there's not many better names to be compared to than uh, Bruiser Brody. Aye, I mean, the the comparison started coming in quite thick and fast, and yeah, Bruiser Brody is truly a legend, sadly taken from us too soon, um, as we've discussed before in the dark side of the ring kind of stuff. Um, what happened then but yeah the, the comparisons came in came in quite thick and fast and when you look at like sort of how how he, how he carried himself at the time as well and some of like his first big names that he fought like Claudio Castagnoli good old Cesaro yay Victoria you'd have, you'd, have to, you'd have to translate that for Dave <laughs> I know who, I listen I'm up up down there I know who big Claudio is <laughs> I and um they had the. They were teaming with like Eddie Kingston and Grizzly Redwood, you know, as part of the Roughnecks, and obviously Claudio Cesaro was with Brian Danielson and Dave Taylor, all guys who appeared in WWE at some point, and they were known as Team Uppercut. So I mean, that's I mean, that's a big, a big uh, all-star cast you've got in just this one match alone with their opening King of Trios match. So it's quite a. Uh, a group to have associated with that one, but uh, Dave, I think we talk about Shikara and something interesting about the Shikara thing is when he debuted there he wasn't actually scheduled to be at the event in which he made his debut mm-hmm. he was actually there visiting friends but Rick, uh, other wrestler Reckless Rufy no showed so the booker of Shikara who um, I'm not going to name um, who's been aware of wrestling in the last 18 months knows why uh, but he offered the Brody Lee a chance you know, to get in the ring and then try and impress him. And two months later, they get brought back. And that's where they kind of blossom because Shikara was like the place where he really made his name. And that's quite interesting that that's how he got into it. And it wasn't really in the gimmick that we would know him for. He kind of debuted as the right stuff Brody Lee. He came out to You Kids on the Block as his theme music, which is <laughs> so much different to what he would have become. Oh, that screams mid to late 2000s if I've ever seen it. Uh, but you know, it just goes to show. Sometimes all you need is a little bit of uh, a little bit of luck to get your big break in in the wrestling scene. And obviously, this was Shikara, obviously being an independent promotion and stuff. It's not as well known as compared to like you know WWE and AEW. But that that those two months after his first match, um, he actually ended up going on a, a bit of a winning streak as well, not being pinned or submitted for the remainder of 2007, which was quite a quite a, a big accomplishment as well but I think it was sort of expected given that you know I think just his sheer size and presence definitely made him very much a a very notable character and the way he carried himself in the ring you know it's it's no surprise he went on for such a, a very long 
undefeated streak because I think they were set to build him up as this monster sort of competitor and it doesn't matter if it was face or heel you know I think fans were going to cheer him either way mm-hmm. yeah uh, Grant, I think it was this five year spell in Shikara that was his you know his big prominence before he signed with WWE this was the place that he made his name and it was shown in the fact that he was you know he competed for the Shikara Grand Championship he was one of the first guys to you know fight for that in the the 12 large summit tournament back in 2011 and you know if he hadn't signed that contract with WWE he could have you know held that title I mean he did lose in a match for it in his final uh, night in the promotion to Eddie Kingston who obviously played a big part in his career as well I mean, you look at some of the names that he had in that time there, obviously he had these matches with Cesaro, Danielson, um, a lot of his earlier bits were tag teams uh, against even the likes of the Throwbacks, which was Hatfield and uh, a favourite of many of us in the podcast, Sugar Dunkerton. Uh, you know, it's, it's quite funny when you think some of these names have crossed paths all those years ago, um, but yeah, it was a legitimate injury that forced him out of the, the tournament for the inaugural championship. But yeah, like he kind of made his name there, and Squared Circle Wrestling, they they two kind of went hand in hand as these two main promotions, and gave a lot of like sort of big matches with some of the names that he's went against over those two. Yeah, uh, Dave, some of the what he had a spell at Dragon Gate USA as well, mm-hmm. uh, and some of the names he faced there. I mean, Grant mentioned it was crazy that he's thinking about some of these collisions, you know, ten years ago, but they had names in there that. John Moxley, he was in the ring with Jimmy Jacobs, Kyle Riley, Rich Swan, and he had a bit of an altercation uh, in a tag team match on the Dragon Gate USA's first live pay per view with WrestleMania 21 legend Aki Bono. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just mad to see how many people he's crossed paths with who eventually did go on to, to WWE. But one name you mentioned there, you know, Moxley, you know, I think, I think, they're, I think they first collided in Evolve, I think it was. And, um, yeah, that would just be the beginning of what would turn into be like a decades-long working relationship between the two. It doesn't matter if they were feuding with each other or, you know, being allies with each other. It's It just goes to show, like, even in earlier times, you can, you know, face certain people in, you know, an unknown promotion. And then somewhere down the line, whether it be 10, 15 years, you could be facing each other again on the grand stage. And it really is a, a who's who of every sort of beloved independent talent that he's brushed shoulders with. So as you mentioned, Jimmy Jacobs, Austin Aries was another one. Uh, Kyle O'Reilly, of course, um, would uh, show up in NXT a little bit after he left. But all these all these names, it just goes to show how full of talent the wrestling world is and how many different personalities can clash on a, on a promotion that essentially just you know, invites anybody that wants to compete. It's and obviously, you know, Brody being one of these guys who had the, the larger than life personality, he did stand out in his own unique way. Yeah, uh, Grant, before we go on to his main runs in WWE and uh, AEW, uh, we'll t- I touched briefly upon he had a, a run in Ring of Honor, which was probably before his WWE run was probably the highest uh, in terms of the uh, you know, a large-scale appeal uh, large, large he had. Uh, it was interesting that he was a part of the Age of Fall stable, uh, which is well known to many fans of the independent scene and probably some WWE fans who are aware of the indies as the stable that 
was essentially Seth Rollins' big break when he was uh, mm-hmm. Isla Black, which was interesting. Yeah, it's again a lot of the uh, the guys crossing paths. Um, you had them crossing paths with Tyler Black. Outside that, in Square Circle Wrestling, he had crossed paths with Kevin Steen. Um, but yeah, the Ring of Honor stuff was quite a big one. Aligned himself with them. Jimmy Jacobs was the the leader of them at the time. Uh, it's it's just crazy. Like all these different names that have been like that are quite legendary. Uh, Necro Butcher being thrown in there. Oh, I had an anything goes. Uh, match with uh, Necro Butcher. I've not actually seen it, but this the description of it alone sounds like it would be an absolute nutshell. <laughs> oh, there's there's nothing there's nothing half and half about it. Like it is insane. <laughs> yeah, that is the Necro Butcher. He's a guy, and he's I think he's still in his thirties, and he looks like he's had a <laughs> in his sixties. He's had a oh, rough keep around as the Necro Butcher. He's uh, he's currently forty eight, and oh my god, he looks about twenty years older. Oh yeah, he's, he's had a rough time of it. He's had a rough time of it. He's a hardcore wrestler. You wouldn't mess him, but my God, it's something else. But we move on to March of 2012, where uh, it is speculated that he had signed a developmental contract with WWE, and it would in turn turn out to be true, as he would debut in the then Florida Championship Wrestling in May of that year under the name Luke Harper. Uh, it wouldn't be an SCW for long, obviously, as that would rebrand to NXT. But he would shortly make his name in that brand as three months after the rebrand, he would debut as a follower of Bray Wyatt, the first son of the Wyatt family. He would then shortly be followed by Eric Rowan, and then, you know, the rest is really history on that one. Uh, guys, I know he's he's been well into the NXT and it's hey. But did you just catch a lot of the stuff in the early days of NXT when this was just getting going? Aye, a little bit. It was this was sort of when you know the black and gold brand NXT really started to take take shape, and you know championships were being introduced. The tag teams were again a little bit um, sort of you know couple pairing of singles guys here and there. But you know Harper and Rowan were felt like a legitimate tag team under the Wyatt family stable. Because, I mean, they'd gone over guys like Percy Watson and Yoshitatsu, which I never thought I'd see that team together. But Percy Watson obviously being from the game show NXT and Yoshitatsu was just another face in the crowd for WWE CW. So he was, yeah, two relatively unknown talents. But then you obviously had Bo Dallas and Michael McGillicutty, the latter to be known Curtis Axel. So there was... There were some. They, they, did, they did establish themselves as a, a very strong team, only missing out on the tag titles first time uh, by losing to Neville and Oliver Gray, but they did become tag team champions eventually, and they did go on to have a couple of uh, great matches, you know, with like Corey Graves, Cassius Ono, and also Neville again. But their their time on NXT was almost blinking you miss because I don't think they were even on the the brand for even a full year. Ah, oh, Dave, you have been quite harsh to Yoshitasha. You got to remember, we Grant on the panel here, and Grant loves seeing a lot of good work from uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Tatsu in the time as opposed to what I'm just in WWE I'm sorry like I I only know Yoshi Tatsu from when he was signed in WWE I don't know anything else about his uh, about his previous promotions and stuff uh, sorry, I've, uh, I've, <laughs> I currently only know uh, Jiro really for taking a dump on uh, live NXT TV so there we go <laughs> uh, aside from Yoshi Tatsu what do you remember from this time I really remember sort of like the the tag like the tag title match against Adrian Neville and Corey Graves when they actually lost it. That was a particularly beautiful, beautiful match. 
but you're like Dave says, they weren't there that long. It was a very much blink and you'll miss it. They are. They, they were. I, I always felt like the Wyatts right from the get go were package came together so fast, so easily, with such a little effort. It was beautiful. I still remember the the Vignettes pro, like promoting the up, upcoming debut, and I was mesmerised. I remember. I I, I remember because they had the. They had this on Sky at the time, and NXT was on Sky Sports at that time, and uh, I remember that because they were really prominent, they were at the top of the card in NXT at that particular point, uh, you know, they had, they were thrust into the feud where you mentioned the guys like uh, Neville, uh, Corey Graves, but they also, Cassie's owner was right in there, William Regal got involved in the feud with the Wyatt family, I think at that point as well, which was interesting, because, but, I mean, as the group at a home, and Dave, uh, obviously the the whole design of it with these kind of cult group from the type of swamp woods type area and I think even if you've never seen Brody Lee's work outside of WWE just the general look that he developed over that time in the indies you know they had the his hair had grew out but the beard had kind of grew out a bit more than that particular point it was looking less Jason Lee uh, mm-hmm. I think at this fair but the kind of shut and everything I mean even before he step foot in the ring you thought this guy is a perfect fit for this group that they're doing you could argue that Eric Rowan was maybe a bit you know was less of a fit but he just looked like a, a weirdo at times so that's kind of how it worked <laughs> but Harper did look like he had generally been grown up in a swamp aye that, that's he, the look he portrayed you know with the vest the jeans and the really the really scruffy look about him it, it did make you feel like he was raised by wolves in a forest so it was I mean, it, it really suited the Wyatt family gimmick down to a T because, you know, the cult, you know, isolates itself from society and it lives, you know, in the deepest part of the woods. And that's how they basically raised themselves. So that was the kind of character that was being portrayed. And it, it, it came across really well. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the, what's it called, the Wrong Turn movies. But, or maybe if you're a bit into sort of more classic films like Deliverance and stuff. Like, it's these sorts of you know, hillbilly type characters that this stable reminded me of and Brody Lee's portrayal of Luke Harper just fit the mould so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the thing about it is, I mean, in the early days, he didn't really, he didn't wrestle a heck of a lot, I think, at this particular point, because their main role at this, at this point, him and Rowan, was mainly to assist, to assist, why? I mean, he had the matches in the tournament in NXT to crown the tag team champions, but on the main roster, you know, they didn't really... They had some brief uh, what matches, but they didn't really come across as a presence in the ring. It was more the stuff they did with Wyatt that made them more intimidating. I mean, they, at first it felt like it was kind of slow and sporadic, but over like over a period of a few months, they they went on a fairly decent winning streak. Um, I think if I remember correctly, their, their, their pretty much their in-ring debut was uh, SmackDown, and that's where they beat tons of funk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was devastated when their match with uh, Cody Rhodes and Damian Sandow got pulled from WrestleMania 29. <laughs> or was that an eight-person? It was an eight-person mix tag, yeah. It was Rhodes Scholars and the Bellas versus tons of funk and the funk dactyls. Yeah, we, I remember sitting in Derek's house at that point going, where's Denzel? <laughs> <laughs> where's Brodus? <laughs> oh, I, was a, I didn't care about Brodus. I literally just uh, let out a cry. Where's Denzel? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Like I go back to you in this one. I think the fact that the early days, other than the Kane stuff, they wasn't really the Wyatts weren't really 
thrust up in the roster. They were kind of the mid to lower cards type thing. But is when they integrated them with Punk and then integrated them with Daniel Bryan that the angle started to work well and you know the three of them just you could just see how well they were clicking on the main roster which as we've known throughout the last seven years since you know doesn't always happen yeah they were they were one of those ones that sort of started slow um quite often like you know people's attention spans can be like now where the people were kind of like uh, is it going anywhere like the gimmick's kind of cool but is it going anywhere put them with punk and brian and it just escalated from there they just kept on going on a roll and that led on to some of their more memorable feuds against the likes of eventually the shield you know you, you were talking they just the Wyatts, everything that they were put to, I was sold right from the get-go. But it was great to see other people finally being like, this is brilliant, I'm getting into this. Yeah, I was quite sold on very early on. I think uh, me and Laura not long started going out when this they debuted. And I think I convinced her to watch Raw. <laughs> like live. I don't know how I managed it. I think it's just a regressive to this day. But it was the night that they debuted and I just loved I mean the vignettes were great leading up to it but I loved how they just sent a camera guy to the swamp just to the house in the swamp and uh, it is Luke Harper Brody Lee who's kind of guiding the cameraman around the place he's just like shh be quiet and it's just it's, it's such it's absolutely brilliant I think Rowan's out the back just cutting wood just like and this, it's just like it's, even that it's just like this is creepy, you know. <laughs> it can be quite intimidating, which was something to behold. Um, was that cameraman ever ever seen again? I mean, who knows what they did with them after they finished filming the the vignettes? Maybe it was just like, you know, it, it turns into Blair Witch Project. Somebody just ventures out to the swamp and finds a lost camera with all that uh, all that footage on it. I don't know. I think they just gave him some weights, put him in the garage, and then two years later, Braun Strowman is built. So. <laughs> you never know it could have been that maybe uh, that's what it was Adam Sher before you know he got jacked and grew a big beard who knows the cameraman could have had a beard you never know we've never seen him and we'll never see him again uh, Dave uh, Grant mentioned the shield match it's mm. something we've talked about on many shows in the past it's literally a case of when the when it's hot you hit it and they did that for this particular one and many people many myself included still look back on this match and think I could watch this every day of the week because it's absolutely fantastic and it it made stars out of all well made stars out of all six even Rowan yeah like this this goes down as one of my favourite matches of 2014 like and I think pretty sure both of them were were heel stables at the time I think the shield was sort of slowly transitioning to a face stable at this point but Either way, nobody cared. They just wanted to see faction warfare at Elimination Chamber. And it was... None of these guys hit a wrong note. You know, everybody found their strive. Everybody got a a decent showing. And it spread all the way to the barricade as well at one point, where I can't remember if it was... um, I think it was Roman and uh, Harper that actually went to the outside over the barricade. And Wyatt, I think, pinned Ambrose. I I can't remember exactly the final outcome, but... Even to the even before anybody took a swing and the, even before the bell rang, like the crowd was chanting, "This is awesome!" You knew it was going to deliver, and I'm really pleased that it did because it is arguably one of their best matches ever. Uh, uh, God, this is the first time I remember them 
you know, you know, showing his range of offense. Because I didn't catch a lot of his uh, work in Chicago, etc. At the time, at this time, and I've seen it now, looking back. But it's amazing just how well he moved. I mean, we, it was obvious, you know, he was a powerful wrestler. His discus clothesline is, you know, devastating. But the fact how easy he could do like the, the tope moves and that thing, just like how he could move like a cruiserweight, it was kind of like a prelude to the things that we would see. You know, a few years down the line, the likes of Keith Lee, Dominic Dijakovic, those guys. Uh, it was one of the, like sort of like a, a good example in that kind of era of as as the old classic saying goes that like, a big a big guy that can move like that was the old the old sort of tagline you always had in commentary. It's like wow, look at that how that big guy moves and. He was. He had a devastating offense, and during the kind of the, like the earlier bits of Wyatt's, it was kept quite limited. Um, they just kind of went for like fairly slow-paced, heavy hitting. But when you actually seen him getting to go up a gear and seeing what he was truly capable of, for anyone that hadn't seen that before, it's like, well, what 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 else can this guy do? What what let's let's see where we can go with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. In a way, they were taking notice in 2014 because 2014 is arguably one of the best years that Luke Harper Brodley had in WWE. Uh, Dave, everybody mentions in time, you know, the Usos had these great matches with the likes of the U-Day and etc. Not too many people, for some strange reason, go back and talk about the matches the U-Day had with Harper and Rowan. It's often mentioned that, that they have involvement, which we'll talk about later on, in the triple threat you know, feud going into WrestleMania in 2018, but the matches they put on at Marina Bank and Battleground in 2014 in the summer, whilst Bray was in the midst of his feud with John Cena, so very high profile, is very underrated. The the two out of three falls at Battleground between the Usos and Harper and Rowan is still arguably one of my favourite tag team matches ever. The other two being uh, DIY Revival two out of three falls and Undisputed Era versus Larkin and Birch. Like, this... There's just something about two out of three falls that just adds an extra element of, like, tension and storytelling. But you could could see how Brody Lee was... Brody Lee was given enough time to really showcase what he was capable of. You know, as Grant mentioned, uh, you know, he was doing, like, Topaz stuff. Very much a hard-hitting type person. You know, he could deliver big boots really quickly. He had the the discus lariat clothesline, which is a very underrated finisher in its own right. But he was also very strong with mat base and wearing down their opponents as well. And I think that's what suited him to a T. But working with a very dynamic, high-flying team like the Usos as well, it was almost like a clash of styles, but they blended brilliantly uh but you could just tell i think in that match harper was like one of the key standouts of of the entire match oh yeah absolutely be great with this battleground match in 2014 the, the poor four guys they had to they opened the show and had to follow the pre-show match between the, the funkadactyls finally clashing you know the mega powers exploding in 2014 but you know it's amazing looking back that a match a tag match involving harper uh, is the longest match on a card that's main evented by John Cena beating Kane, Randy Orton and Roman Reigns in a fatal four-way. <laughs> that's, that's so refreshing to see. I know, like, actually giving them the time, like, because, you know, as they're often called, like, the, the curtain twitcher match, the opener, um, but they treated it like it was a main event. They gave it time. All four of them went in for it. No one came out of it looking bad. Like, a lot of people still to this day give 
Eric Rowan, I think, a harder time than really what he deserves. Because he can actually work. He can really work very well. And in his tag team work, he was he was brilliant. You know, and I, I feel that his tag teaming with uh, with Brody was always one of the most fun tag teams to watch, whether it was as the Wyatt family or as we'll discuss later, the Bludgeon Brothers. I think Rowan, his singles career was badly hurt by that stairs match he has with the big show that year I don't think he ever recovered from that as a singles competitor well Brody Lee still had a solid enough you know few months going into 2015 but obviously kind of just faded away uh, but Dave how well how much in that year did you see into Brody Lee's eyes because as 2014 concluded we started getting these video vignettes of just these eyes and for a few weeks a lot of people are kind of like what the heck is going on (laughs) until it kind of turns out that this is you know the Wyatt family splits up that summer they go their own ways you know and lo and behold the authority who are in a feud with John Cena and need need you know big power to help win the Survivor Series that year recruit such an unauthoritative wrestler in the form of a man that wears a white vest <laughs> and he comes in and it's like right you've done all these big eye intimidating when it's just done that he's going to be one of the guys for Triple H but hey ho for the month or so that it kind of worked they ran with it it was great yep and he even won the Intercontinental title at that point as well like defeating Ziggler in quite surprising fashion as well because we've always during his time in WWE we've always seen him as a tag team guy with you know with Rowan and the Wyatts but in his first sort of big solo breakout moment he actually wins the the Intercontinental title and it, it, it adds extra reinforcement for Team Authority at the time so he ties in very well as not just like a solo champion but also an extra an extra man for the bigger picture that makes sense and I suppose that was countered in a way by Rowan joining Team Cena but that was just I think that was just a very weird alliance in that aspect no Harper's alignment with authority was was so so much better done and it looked like you know it was the beginning of a massive singles push for him but when he lost the title to Ziggler back at TLC that year it was uh, I don't know it just felt like the rug had been pulled out from under him too soon like I felt like they were really really finally going to push him as a singles guy but he just as we've seen in the years ahead he just never seemed to really hit the heights as a as a singles guy yeah grad 27 days his intercontinental title reign lasted for granted the match he loses the intercontinental championship to Ziggler at TLC that year is an absolute banger but it gives you that feeling that kind of We've seen so many times from WWE in the past with so many guys that you think this guy's got the capability, and then when he loses this quick, you think they're going to botch it with him. And if you look 2015, that fear looked like it was going to happen. Yeah, like this, this kind of like the, the strong start for the singles push. It just seemed to go off the rails really quickly after the whole authority thing, and. I, I do feel like to an extent he was kind of lost in the shuffle a bit like they didn't know what to do with him they had a lot of parts moving around um, and I do feel that like you know one of the biggest crimes is him dropping that IC belt back I feel that he, he deserved at least a few months with it to really show the people what he could do mm-hmm. yeah because I don't even I can't remember does Ziggler even get a long run after that with the belt again I think that uh, he, 
It was 2015, so... Because I know, Ash, this is the point where the... Because Barrett wins the belt and the whole IC title keeps getting stolen about and then we get that... Uh, the ladder match, yeah. That ladder match at... Uh, yeah, at WrestleMania that particular year, where he absolutely destroys uh, Dean Ambrose, John Moxley. Devastating powerful, which leads to a quite an entertaining Chicago street fight that they actually have extreme rules that year. So it's oh, that actually that that street fight actually is recorded as one of WWE's longest matches ever at fifty six minutes. Like it was sheer madness. Like these guys, they they opened the show, they disappeared for about half an hour 45 minutes or so and yeah they came back still fighting and then the i think the the pinfall was scored i can't remember if it was either after the u.s title match or the divas match but it went on for that long it was and it's still recorded as one of the longest matches ever it's it's just one of these little things you know you, you don't take a second look at until you look at you know Brody lee's specific profile and you think he's done so many incredible moments but yet it just doesn't seem to, you know, get that recognition for it. The powerbombing Moxley through the ladder is one of the sickest bumps I've ever watched, especially when it was a, a bridged ladder on the outside and Moxley looked like he landed on his neck as well. It was it was a horrific spot to watch. I have not, I've not read. It's probably good. It's probably in Moxley's book. Moxley will talk about that spot in his book somewhere. Um, no doubt. I think at the time he was very much. I think you admitted at the time it was hot like fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, I mean, if you were power at a steel, well, you know they use like wooden ladders for bridge spots and stuff, but it's, it's still hard. It's still hard like a bastard. Mm-hmm. But Grant, uh, interestingly, on the Moxley point, uh, which is interesting as well if you kind of look how 2020 went, uh, he was heavily involved with a lot of Dean Ambrose, John Moxley throughout the year of 2015, I think it comes to fruition, because it has. The match that Dave mentioned at uh, Extreme Rules that particular year, and then he and Bray come back together later in the year, the summer, which is a sign WWE have thought I've kind of gave up on him as a singles competitor that team, which is sad in itself. But we'll talk about that a wee bit later on when we talk about the next type of push. And then the two of them end up feuding with Roman Reigns and Dean Ambrose at SummerSlam, and then we get the extra element of Braun Strowman joining the Wyatt family and then they eventually have a six-man tag at Night of Champions that year where Chris Jericho is surprisingly added to the three. I think if you look at Grant with your AEW head-on of how the, the Moxley Brody Lee feud went in 2020 this is quite interesting how much they kind of were paired together in 2015. Yeah there was actually like quite a the, the two of them just always seem to find a way back to each other um, and I think to an extent what WWE were trying to do they were like, they're like right we're not sure about you in a singles guy so we'll put you back with Wyatt oh wait Rowan's injured um, Rollins is doing his thing so we're going to have like a two thirds of the shield vs two thirds of the Wyatt feud to try and recapture that but it was like lightning in the bottle the first time they never managed to capitalise on, on that second time mm-hmm. yeah it was just it Dave, it was kind of, I think, this particular entity of the Wyatt family uh, just did not work in terms. I mean, the Braun Strowman, the fair play to Braun Strowman, great singles run that he'd eventually have, but that run didn't come until the Wyatts broke up. 
I mean, if you kind of look at what happened to these three guys after the after like the lie, or the four guys, sorry, you know, uh, in the time they had, they were they were positioned to be feuding with Brock Lesnar. It fell through. Mm-hmm. They were fed to the Brothers of Destruction at Survivor Series that year for the Undertaker's 25th anniversary. And um, yeah, Eric Rowan was fed to The Rock at WrestleMania. So oh, pure Rowan. Harper was even Harper was the side guy in that kind of thing. He never really felt like the main point of that one. I kind of felt like he'd been pushed aside. Even Rowan, to an extent, had kind of been pushed aside for Strowman. Uh, it was a very tricky time, you know, introducing, obviously, somebody who would go on to win the Universal title, Braun Strowman, and he was, uh, I think he appeared in a couple of NXT house shows a bit, you know, under his sort of Adam Sher persona, but... Um, yeah, this was a weird time because I think they were hit with the also the combination of bad luck, you know, with Rowan getting injured as well and only operating at seventy five percent capacity. But it's not like they weren't involved in big programs as such, you know, because obviously the brothers of destruction at Survivor Series that year it was a it was a big deal to be a part of it. But you're right, it's the the flip side of that is they were basically cannon fodder for the brothers of destruction, and I think Harper and Wyatt were actually the ones that were selected to compete, even though everybody assumed it was just going to be Wyatt and Strowman. So it was some very, some very weird booking and a little bit mixed as well, given you know personal stuff and injuries, etc. But they did have a that interesting uh, eight-man elimination tables match at TLC against the ECW Originals, which I thought was quite a good way to get them over as as a as a full faction. Because I think only Rowan got eliminated in that match; everybody else survived. So all in all, it was a pretty solid performance from them on that part, but. Yeah, going into 2016, definitely a lot of missed booking opportunities, uh, you know, with Brock Lesnar, you know, having the reaction in the Royal Rumble. But Harper did get a one-on-one match with Lesnar at the Roadblock pay-per-view that year. Again, it was more of a squash to uh, sort of continue the, the Wyatt family feud. and But then it just went in a completely different direction come WrestleMania season. Uh, Harper was, was he not off TV by that point? Uh, he, like he, he didn't make it to Mania. He didn't make it to Mania, though. He suffered a knee injury on uh, an untelevised match on Raw. Put him out, for six, put him out for I, six months. I thought that Lesnar match at Roadblock was a two-on-one handicap match. It was a, it, it, it was, it was a two-on-one handicap match, but Wyatt never really enters the ring, so it's technically... <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a two-on-one handicap match, but Wyatt never actually does it. Oh, yeah, it's just Harper does all the work, yeah. It's pretty much Wyatt gets fed to Lesnar. No, no, Harper gets fed to Lesnar, and it's pretty... Yeah, it, it kind of ends the feud. This is kind of the match just goes like, there's the feud. Ends. But if you watch what happens at the Rumble, what happened at the Rumble was really good. Like, if that was the WrestleMania match, it would have been great. But I think it kind of saw how. Well, I can't remember what people Fastlane, where they did the triple threat, Lesnar, Reigns, and Ambrose. Yeah, that's it, Fastlane. Yeah, and they kind of they saw. They thought Ambrose worked well with Lesnar, so put them together. But that was a fucking bad move as well. That was, that was even worse. They were vic- they, Harper in particular was victim of horrid booking and horrid timing when it came to injuries, especially you know up to WrestleMania season and after the Royal Rumble, because that's the time where you know storylines should be built and you know he, he should be getting showcased, uh, particularly because he hasn't had that many WrestleMania moments, you know, because obviously he was in the 2015 ladder match, but he never won it. And I think his only other WrestleMania moment was when he won the tag titles with Rowan at Mania 34 in 2018. Aside from that, he's just been in 
pre-show battle royals, injured or managerial roles. So it's he's been he was hard done by in 2016 massively. Yeah, I mean, Grant, you mentioned that obviously they didn't hit the same fire with the Wyatt family any other time they did it, which is fair enough. However, they did have a, quite a good run after WWE did the draft in, in late 2016 to 2017. The, one of the best, I think the better part of that element was they did something different and they added Orton into it and they brought Harper back. And I remember Harper coming back in No Mercy that year. And I was hyped as end for that. I thought, this is great. This is, and then all the integration, the tease, the descent. I thought this could be something big at that particular that particular time. Mm. Aye, it was it was a very odd like sort of like Orton being printed. It's like, wait a minute, what what are they doing? But yeah, it, it surprisingly for the um, for the whole actually really really worked and it was quite enjoyable and the dissension was there. Um, culminating with that uh, that that match between Harper and Orton uh, on the January twenty fourth episode of SmackDown, the reason I remember that because that was my birthday, so I stayed up to watch it. <laughs> I with the um, you know Bray betrayed him. It was such a sad uh, moment being betrayed by your father or your cult leader. You know I don't really know how that particularly works. Uh, they were interesting. They had the free bump rule at this particular point as well that they ran with it as well. So technically, he was given another run as a champion. I yeah, I think that was that actually recognises his first tag team, well, first main roster tag team championship because it was actually Orton and Wyatt that won the tag titles from uh, Slater and Rhino, and Harper just sort of subbed in as the sort of freebird guy. So they were operating as a very different sort of Wyatt family Orton stable. Yeah, it was a very, very weird booking, especially when Randy Orton won the Royal Rumble just a couple of months later. And, you know, you mentioned the dissension in the ranks with the Wyatts and Orton and stuff. I think there was a lot of potential here to try and get Harper involved in some capacity, and that would really cement him as a singles guy. Um, Because remember when Orton said he'd forfeit his title match because Bray Wyatt won the WWE title in the Elimination Chamber? Like, that opened the door for, like... I think it was between Harper and AJ who like drew in a battle royal and went one on one with each other. It was it could so easily have been, you know, if Harper earned the shot, then Orton says, Oh no wait, I want back in. Why they didn't do a triple threat at that year's mania between the three of them is beyond me. Because you know, Harper's shown he's more than capable of being a singles guy. He's he's he was adored by the fans. And he had a couple of championship accolades under his wing as well, so it wasn't just a complete, a complete no-brainer booking like this. This was writing on the wall potentially for a great WrestleMania clash, and we ended up again with just something what could have been. Yeah, Grant. To follow up on that point, Dave mentioned. I remember from the Royal Rumble where Harper comes back and attacks uh, Bray and all, all the way up to that particular, you know, that Dave mentioned that kind of battle royal. So many people were clamouring for that triple threat match. The writing was pretty much there. You got the triple threat in, the, in that one. It would work out. And I think there was a rumour going about. I can't remember how true this rumour would be. That the finish to that particular battle royal with him and Harper and AJ. Apparently Harper doesn't do the finish right. And the rumour has it that Vince wasn't happy about that. That's the reason they could never get put in the triple threat match. But given just how shit the 
Randy Orton Bray Wyatt match was at that particular year's WrestleMania. Even if the plan wasn't for Harper to win it, even the plan was just for him to be the guy to take the pin. How much better would it have been to have him in there for that particular match? Oh, the ma- match would have been completely different. You know, we could have got rid of the uh, the stupid gimmicks. Had a straight up solid triple threat between three guys who are known to have great chemistry. Um, but it just did not come to be because if if the rumor is true and Vince was that petty, well, that just further shows Vince is like a child with his toys. Yeah, it's just whoever's the flavor of the month for that particular point. The downfall of Harper from that point, you kind of have a feeling that Vince is pissed at him by the fact that in the WrestleMania free show Andre Battle Royal that year he gets eliminated by Titus O'Neil. Titus fucking O'Neill. Not even like I mean that year's I mean who was in that year's Andre Battle Royal? I'm trying to remember exactly Ooh, who So Braun Strowman was in it. Gender was off no Gronk wasn't in it I think. It was uh, Mojo Rawley that won that year. So it was Mojo Rawley, Gender Big Show, Braun Strowman. Who else was in it? Oh, but Big Demo was in it too. Right, you, literally the amount of the guys that were in this match that could have eliminated them would have looked so much better. I mean, Strowman, Big Show, two big guys. Yeah, that's fair enough. You know, I mean, Big Demo, he had a good run in the in the Battle Royal. Actually, he could have done it. You know, fucking Mark Henry's in the match. He could do it. But no, uh, Sami Zayn's in the match. Sami Zayn could eliminate him too. But no, 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 no. Titus fucking O'Neill, who has a no, job still no. because he's a great. I'm going to point out there, son, actually, are we following your logic there? You go through all these big guys, you go big guy, big guy, big guy, then Sami Zayn. Titus O'Neill would fucking eat Sami Zayn, he's that much bigger than him. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. That, I know the size thing, I know. I'm trying to get sympathy for the gingers, it's not happening. This is not what this show's about. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, could you imagine Sami Zayn being doing it just like, like big fierce strength for Bernie's? Um, but uh, but, then he, but nowadays he just could claim it was a conspiracy that people eliminated you, him. They missed an opportunity. Could you imagine Sami Zayn just disappearing under the ring and suddenly out comes Eric Rowan? It's like, <laughs> it's like in a ginger Incredible Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, can you imagine? Oh, man, that would be uh, getting a time don't machine. Give, go don't, back, don't give ideas, gonna, you know. Royal Rumble's not that long away. <laughs> they can do something. <laughs> Fucking no. Who bloody knows these days? Uh, so yeah, things yeah, things go south for him at that particular point. Uh, he's not seen... He, he, he briefly goes into a feud with Eric Rowan, which he wins. But not a lot really happens for him. He kind of disappears from television. But uh, then Grant, we then get the vignettes that show him and Eric Rowan reuniting, not as Wyatt Family 4.0, but as the Bludgeon Brothers. And to add things to it, they dump, they take the first names away from them. He's now just Harper. <laughs> no, I'm not going to lie. Like The gimmick at first, I was not overly sold on when I saw the Vignettes at first. I was like, what the fuck is this? And then they actually came out, and I'm not gonna lie, I was like, I'm not gonna lie, I really like that. Like the, like the stupidly sized, like, hammer, I was like, this is actually quite entertaining. Like, they're, they're actually having a bit of fun with it, it looks like. <laughs> I quite like the music. I thought the music was quite different, it was just like, yeah, these guys, yeah. Let's see what these guys can do. And, I think the, uh, the pinnacle of this particular, 
run Dave is obviously the match at WrestleMania 34, where they don't just beat the Usos in the new day. They absolutely batter the Usos in the new day. And let's be honest, it was at a point in that particular card that we really, we, a quick tag match like this fit very perfectly because we had so many high impact matches that were came before it. Mm. Like this was, this was Harper and Rowan done, done right. You know, it was done the same way when they first arrived on the main roster. Like, you know, new music, new gimmick, new outfits. It's, it really, it was really like pressing the reset button with these guys and I honestly think they were a lot more. They looked so much more dominant as the Bludgeon Brothers uh, than they were with just as Wyatt family members. Because at least here they stood out on their own without the aura of Bray Wyatt to, to help them out. And their big sort of uh, undefeated run as well. You know, going against the Hype Bros, Breezango, and even up all the way up to the you know the Usos in the New Day at WrestleMania. It was. It was a very much blinking you miss it type match because that card was so stacked. Uh, now don't, I'm not sure how long the the match itself lasted, but it was it happened that quick. It almost felt like a squash match in itself. Yeah. Aye, no, here we go. Yeah, it lasted just, aye, just under minutes. just under six minutes, and this came, and it was it was following uh, Angle and Ronda Rousey versus Triple H and Stephanie. So it was in a very awkward position on the card at the same time. So, so they may not have, um, they might have had to face the burnout section of the show, you know, when the crowd had just been hyped up from a great match. But when you watch it like out of context and just on its own, it's a dominant performance from them right from the start. And they could have used the the hammers as well because it was a triple threat match, no DQs. Oh, they should have used the hammers. Oh, they should have just absolutely. They should have went pure four on the lasses, just like. <laughs> Yeah, but you could tell them. You could, you, you could tell they were just like made of like uh, really convincing-looking plastic. They didn't actually give them sledgehammers that heavy because carrying, you know, stone blocks on little sticks, they, they would have either snapped or they'd just been too heavy to carry. Dave, you're you're really explaining logic here. The fact that Triple H didn't have a sledgehammer really either. This wasn't a proper one. So <laughs> imagine it's like gents, we want you to do this angle, and we want you to carry these big, bastard, and heavy hammers out with every week, right? Yeah, I don't know if I buy that. Have you seen the size of them? And plus, uh, there's a lot of like folk that even use big, massive hammer body things for their workouts and that these days. So it wouldn't have been completely improbable for them to have something with a bit of weight to it. They have the ta- they have the titles for a few months. You know, they have some wins. They beat the Usos at the Greatest Royal Rumble. They beat uh, Anderson and Gallows and Money in the Bag. And then they have the match with Team Hell. No, I'm not really going to discuss because that was a bit. Uh. That was not. I was not team held no at the peak. But the reign unfortunately ended at 135 days. As it's also announced that Rowan had torn his right bicep and they had to put the team on hiatus. This is, uh, Dave, you mentioned earlier on about injuries. This is just unfortunate because this tag team could have went on for a, a good while without that. Yeah, I mean, at 135 days, that's no a short reign either. That's like a good, what, five months? Give or take, four months maybe. Uh, yeah, but four months. Yeah. Uh, again, it's just a case of you know one of the two of them being bogged down with injuries, etc. Like obviously Harper and his knee injury came at a horrific time, and now Rowan's bicep injury just came at the worst time as well. But they did have a really good match with the New Day. So I think Woods did uh, the the springboard elbow f- through a table on Harper, and it was a, a very very good way to sort of finish it. But then. 
that was basically the nail in the coffin, I think, for, for Harper. Because um, well, with Rowan written off, Harper was sort of written off at the same time. Yeah, because Grant has pretty much been barely seen Luke Harper in any capacity again in WWE really after this. When he had uh, a couple of brief appearances at some shows, he, he had a match with Dominic Dijakovic at the WrestleMania Access in 2019. He was in the Battle Royal that, that year after not being on any really form of TV at some points. He had a dark match with EC3 after WrestleMania that year, to which point that was what was apparently him done with WWE, apparently he requested his release. He was meant to be, his contract was meant to be up at the end of that year. WWE, this, because of his injury time, at that time was added on to his contract. But they just didn't have really any plans to use him. He briefly came back to help Eric Rowan in his feud with Roman Reigns. But on December 8, 2019, WWE announced four men had been released. One was Harper, and the other two have not did not go to the same. It was Sinkara in the, the Ascension. So that was the end for him. Was this a case? of something that could have been good but ultimately WWE just did not know how to use somebody like him which let's be honest they have done so many occasions Aye I feel um, Luke Harper as he was in WWE was a prime example of someone who the fans were behind multiple times people wanted it and WWE just did not listen to the fans and they messed it up big time Um, to me he like the Intercontinental title reign should have been longer. He should have been inserted into the bigger, bigger picture at other manias and that as well. To me, he was a potential world title. While maybe not holder because they never actually really explored his promo abilities. He still would have been a good solid main eventer for someone that was challenging, but they, they never let him talk. That was a big problem. Yeah, that was, it, it, it was a shame that never gave him the mic. Considering what he would do when he was given that opportunity in 2020. Which moves us, Dave, to March of that year, 2020. Most people remember March 2020 as a horrific time. We first introduced Sir Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty, who have never been offered fucking television since. <laughs> and then in Jacksonville, who have still never heard, fortunately, of Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Valance, <laughs> we got a debut. It had been teased for a weeks before that of a leader was coming to the Dark Order. The Dark Order had been talking for months about the Exalted One. Rumours had been flying of who the Exalted One could be. Matt Hardy was one of the ones considered. There were so many names considered. I can't actually remember some of the names that were considered, so i just got to say Matt Hardy and stick with it. I think but, Raven was another one as well. Ah, of course, Raven's always associated with things like this. But it was revealed on the, 18, the March 18, 2020 edition of Dynamite that the Exalted One was, in fact, Roddy Lee. Now, a great moment, Dave, but an unfortunate timing of this moment because March 18th, as I alluded to when I was ranting just before then, was the point where the pandemic for COVID really hit in, and this was the first AEW empty arena show, which really, if you'd imagined this in a full crowd, what a moment it would have been. It would have been brilliant. And it was something that the Dark Order needed as a whole as well, because 
at the time, you know, they were just more goofy than anything else, and nobody was really buying the gimmick in the same way that nobody was buying the Nightmare Collective as well. But the the arrival of the Exalted One, Mr. Brody Lee, was it turned everything around for the Dark Order, and it's a again, it's it's the guy that's just been plagued with bad luck throughout his career. You know, he get he's about to get arguably the biggest pop of his career uh, amongst you know, an audience of hardcore wrestling fans who have been cheering him for years. And the week his reveal occurs is the week the world shuts down and everybody goes into hiding. It's it's just such a shame. But you could tell everybody tuned in for it to happen. And even though they weren't there to, to witness it, I'm sure there were fans around the world, like, delighted to see him finally getting put in a prominent position in a new company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Grant, you, kind of, you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago that WWE didn't give him that opportunity from the mic, which AEW flipped on its head right away. You saw, as Dave mentioned, the Dark Order before this point, you know, they looked like they were floundering. The stuff they were doing, they doing them with them at the end of 2019 just doesn't, wasn't working. They had to flip the script, and with Brody Lee at the helm, they did that because he was... He was having those vignettes where he was essentially was taking the piss out of Vince with the steak thing. Obviously, there's that big rumour that goes about how Vince likes his steak and all that type of stuff. He pretty much went anti-cult leader because there was always this thing, Dark Order's a cult, join darkorder.com. And he's like, yeah, I'm not, I deny completely that we are a cult, you know, and he just like, he would just, he just took the ball and ran with it anytime he was given a mic or he did a, a video package or a promo backstage. I absolutely loved and I think another thing that went underappreciated by some people but people are kind of looking back and going wow is a lot of his appearances on being the elite as well it's in particular his chemistry with John Silver always throwing the papers at him was absolutely hilarious Oh, that was good. Actually, it wasn't the way Vince likes to snake it. Was, uh, well, I think it's Alex Reynolds that sneezes in one of them, and he goes, I don't, <laughs> you don't sneeze. <laughs> just... Yeah, it was like, you know, t- taking a few jabs at Vince, because I remember somebody, uh, there was another story backstage that somebody sneezed on Vince, and he went off his tits about it. Yeah, he's a bit of a, I think he's a bit of a jump folk. I think it's good. That was the second, it was like, he debuted on the 18th on the 25th, they ran this thing with him. He's cutting a steak so awkwardly as well in it as well. It's just, it's, it does a great job of, of getting them. Because, you know, I think it's quite refreshing that somebody can be frustrated with WWE without doing a prison video package. You know, so, yeah. I like the fact he's suited and booted for his for his digs instead. Nah, it's completely different. I mean, Buddy Murphy was in a, he was in a prison, you know, What's his Joseph Connors mentions prisons in his latest one, geez, but yeah, it's something different that works well. Uh, and obviously, Dave, they were they were happy enough backstage that they thought double or nothing that year. Let's stick him in the big match. Let's put him with Moxley, you know. And mm-hmm. yeah, he's he's he could, you know, he, he was getting beaten in battle royals by Titus O'Neil three years earlier, <laughs> and now he's in the main event of arguably AEW's biggest pay per view. I well, he and Mo- as we said, he and Moxley have got a lot of history together, you know, both as allies and as rivals. So you get two guys who had really good chemistry and they know each other so well. It was only fitting that they'd go ahead in the main event of uh, you know a big pay per view. Uh, but what I think let it down though, I think I-, I still think maybe he was pushed too quickly to become AEW champion. I mean, I appreciate you know what they were trying to do, but 
Moxley was having such an excellent reign at that point, it, it wouldn't make sense to drop it for him to drop it so soon, especially, you know, even if it's somebody who's been hyped up as Brody Lee was as the exalted one. But then again, you know, this is the wrestling industry, and I suppose anything can happen at any time. So, it, but AEW's this was one of its bad habits, you know, in its earlier and it sort of was within its first sort of year or so where they would push a guy who's received a lot of hype in just a short space of time only for him to fall short against the main champion and that sort of knocks them down a peg but it's not like he didn't bounce back from it though because I mean he did go on to have the feud with Cody and become only the second ever TNT champion yeah I think a lot of people thought him losing to Moxley you know it kind of maybe it hit because he'd only been in the company two months so a lot of people thought maybe it hit his momentum a wee bit but in a way, when you look at it, AEW's roster, while it was stacked, it wasn't as stacked as now. They had, had so many other guys in that stamp stadium stampede match. They had Cody in that, uh, obviously, he couldn't challenge for the world title, but he was in the TNT title match. I mean, given these momentum, there wasn't a lot of other options they could have done, so they could have, there was probably no harm in it. And as they maybe showed three months later, he had the potential to recover from it. Oh yeah, I mean that's it. Like um, having him like go up against Moxley, who was on a tear and losing and making it his first loss, it wasn't exactly the worst person in the world to lose. What it was against, and afterwards Lee going on his recruitment campaign with the Dark Order, bringing in Colt Cabana, like the chemistry with him and Colt Cabana, him oh, playing into Colt's denial, like sort of doubts and everything. I loved that. That was so well done. Um, and it got people invested and it did lead up to eventually that match with Cody which to me is one of the best matches Brody Lee has ever had mm-hmm. yeah uh, that match with Cody is <laughs> I still think it's one of my favourite ever dynamite moments <laughs> nothing to do with how I feel about Cody Rhodes right. in the slightest I just think it's absolutely amazing It just kind of Dave he goes out Fucking lots for about 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I think this is, if I remember rightly, this was the dynamite. They ran on a Saturday night. They were near enough going head to head with TakeOver, who were headlined by Finn Balor, Kyle O'Reilly that night, who mm-hmm. equally kicked lungs out of each other. So it was just a, it was a great night of wrestling for people getting the shit kicked out of them. Oh, like that was, that was a squash match. Like, I don't think there's any other way to put it. And, I mean, what a way to bounce back from, you know, a loss to the, the to Moxley for the AEW title. He just goes in, destroys Cody left, right and centre, and walks out as TNT champion. Like, it's it gave me Cena-Lesnar vibes at SummerSlam 2014. Like, that's how one-sided that contest was. But it's exactly what a guy of his stature and his character needed, especially when, you know, he's put in such a prime position to be not only the head of a stable, but someone who was probably going to be one of the top guys in AEW. He needed that dominant performance and it reminded me so much of what could have been in his singles run but, you know, Vince just didn't have any of it. It's it's just these missed opportunities that, you know, just because one person's bias holds somebody back. This, Tony Khan must have just been like, you know what, we'll give you some creative control, we'll let you be your your, your basically your brawling strongman type character and he just went out and did it brilliantly yeah uh, Grant I don't know if you maybe will agree or disagree with this one I'm happy if you go either way with it because my opinions on Cody Rhodes matches and certain other people in 
Cody Rhodes' Nightmare Family are, you know, different. But all out that year, he uh, his last pay-per-view match, it's a, it's a match of the Dark Order. It's him, Colt Cabana, Evil Uno, and Stu Grayson losing to the most mismatched team I've ever seen in my life of QT Marshall, Dustin Rhodes, Scorpio Sky, and Mark, Matt Cardona. Now, I don't know about you, but given how enjoyable the rematch with Cody is, the dog collar match on Dynamite, I feel like they, they should have pushed Cody to maybe come back and do the match all out. I don't know what you think, or was it the way they did it, the right way of doing it? No, I, I think I think it worked um, for the most part. Um, I mean, I still get annoyed that Cody won the rematch because I, I'm a firm believer of why the hell does Cody always have to get his win back? But that, yeah. that 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 could be a whole show in its own thing that we could easily go into. But we're not going to do that right now. But you know, um, you still you still got a long while to go. We need to build up the, the you know the things to talk about. <laughs> but you know, like that that the match it was such a such a weird team, and for the the Dark Order to lose it against such a mismatched team, I I, I felt there was a little bit of a misstep there um, on the booking front. I, I just I, I still can't get my head around it to be honest to this day. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Dave, that all out card. Um, it was, it was an interesting one. They had some good stuff. On, they had some decent stuff on it. It still stands out to me as one of the worst pay per views. I'm not going to lie. Uh, that match just didn't feel right. Uh, you know, Jericho got submerged in a vat of mimosa. You know, um, mm. you know there was the bloody, there was Matt Hardy and Sammy Guevara feud that should never that's just never ending uh, there was that freaking tooth and nail match between Swole and freaking Brit Baker oh my god this is horrendous pay-per-view I should not have this stay away from stay away from all out yeah that's, that was oh it was a nightmare that was a pay-per-view that was only saved by the fact that of like it's like 11 or 12 matches you had like maybe like 3 matches which were absolutely outstanding and, yeah, and when you put when like it's like it's like if you took away those three matches, this pay per view would be a, a total dud beginning to end. But those three matches kind of make it go from like if you're putting on a scale of ten, it's like a six now. These, yeah, these matches yeah. that six. Yeah, there was a Shida Thunder Rosa was pretty decent. You know, FTR and Omega Adam Page were pretty good, and the main event was pretty decent too. But yeah, I'm not the talk about this pay per view. Uh, I did mention. Uh, uh, unfortunately, Brody Lee has his final match uh, on October seventh, twenty twenty. The match I mentioned, where he loses the TNT title back to Cody Rhodes. It was a reign that is recognised as forty six days by AEW, so not the longest run of it. And then, unfortunately, he would go on hiatus for what was an, un, an undisclosed injury, which we would sadly learn was the injury that would lead to his death which was announced on Boxing Day last year 2020 Brody Lee sadly passed away at the age of 41 after nearly two months being treated for what was the injury which was a a lung issue at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida not going to be one of those podcasts that sit there speculate on such and such things that happened just going to leave it as that but it's a shame because I mean they did they did confirm what the official cause of death was. It was idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Um, there was a lot of uncouth rumours put out at the time, and well done to AEW for the fact that 
they kept everything quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely nothing. They literally the point where the thing gets announced, you're like, what? Where's he been? He was on telly two months ago, you know, three months ago. You know, it's mental. Uh, Dave, you know, it's quite sick because it looked like he was on the road to having an absolutely stellar run. I mean, obviously, at the age of 41, he wasn't going to be there forever. You know, he was, he was mm-hmm. probably, his career was probably going to be in the winding down few years, but he still had the potential to have three, four fantastic years in that one that could have led the Dark Order to so many heights, you know? Yeah, it was it was a genuine shock to see that he'd passed away, given it wasn't that long ago that, you know, he was still competing in AEW. But I think the most shocking, another shocking time was obviously, like, um, Eddie Guerrero's death, where he wrestled the, like, the match against Kennedy, and he died only a few days later. I mean, that was that was just as shocking. So, but you're right. I mean, at the age of 41, it, it's difficult to say how long he would have last, like how much longer he would have been wrestling for. But because I think there was a point where he even considered retiring before jumping to to WWE. I mean, as as early as that. But I mean, you look at guys in the wrestling industry now, guys and women, I should say, like who are in their 40s and still competing, like. I'm pretty sure is Christopher Daniels not like in his fifties now. Just Aye, Christopher Daniels in his fifties. <laughs> so, well, I think it just goes so age doesn't really necessarily be an indicator of when I, somebody's going to wind down their career. Like somebody could keep going uh, until like their mid fifties. I mean, look look at Sting; he's still going like in his late fifties, early sixties now. So, Sting. <laughs> I mean, Brody could have easily done the same thing, even if he just wanted to be the an inactive competitor, but sort of leaning, sort of, he could have been like an on-screen authority figure, or a, you know, still being the cult leader kind of thing. Who never got involved, he would just send his his lackeys to do the work for him. It was there still was a ton of potential for him, you know, come the turn of the new year. And who's to say he couldn't have just um, won the AEW World Title at some point? Because Given how much admiration and respect he had his peers amongst his peers across any promotion, and he could back it up in the ring just as well, he had all the accolades and the credibility to have at least one world title run on a main promotion. Yeah, I mean, looking at the stats, of Grant on it, he had a hundred, no, he had one thousand one hundred and seventy-one matches in his career. Obviously. WWE, there was loads of house shows in that particular point. He won 45.6% of them, which his most successful year, win percentage-wise, actually being 2020 in the AEW, where he won 11 of his 14 matches that he had there, which just shows that he was on the path to being one of their top guys. And obviously, when you see all the things that people were saying about him, not just the guys in the AEW locker room, but so many others across the wrestling world. I mean, the guys like the U Day and that type of stuff were very, are very vocal of how much you know uh, Brody meant to them. Obviously, Bray Wyatt. I seen something this week that actually at WrestleMania this year he had a bit of a subtle tribute in his attire, I think, or his or his entrance or something like that. So it just shows that the impact he had. He's, he was a true. He was a you know a locker room leader, even mm-hmm. though it wasn't you know shown until you know. Yeah, unfortunately, passed. A uh, couple of other statistics for you. He got Wrestling Observer newsletters. I didn't know you were, I didn't know you were Grant. <laughs> oh, sorry. 
I've, um, I think I think another big sort of thing, like you know, it, it kind of surely didn't matter where you looked. No one had a bad thing to say about him, and out of the tragedy of his death, also in 2021, CM Punk stated how this was all handled by AEW, um, the decorum, the the, the the subtle intact, and how they handled it was part of what inspired Punk to come back to wrestling again. Um, which says a lot about how well loved he was and how well this was handled compared to other things that have happened in the wrestling industry. Yeah, it's something. Dave, tell us about that stat that you were going to say. Yeah, that's my bad, sorry. Um, but yeah, just to sort of load another thing, he was sort of like an unsung hero of the of his time in WWE as well because he got um, Best Gimmick Wrestling Observer Newsletter in 2013 as part of the Wyatt family. And he also got Slammy Award for Match of the Year in 2014, which was Team Cena versus Team Authority. So not one that he stood out as a singles guy, but, um, you know, he was part of, you know, matches or gimmicks that, you know, had people talking. You know, it kind of it's kind of like the, the New Day almost. You know, you see them as like a, a faction, but individually they could be credited as unsung heroes. Not to mention as well, PWI in 2015 he was ranked number 24 in top 500 singles wrestlers of that year and but that year was obviously won by I think it was 2015 I think that was uh, Seth, Seth Rollins yeah Seth Rollins won it and he was, t- see, he was 24th but you look at the guys that were top 10 that year I mean uh, Seth Rollins John Cena AJ Styles Roman Reigns Shinsuke Nakamura Randy Orton Jay Briscoe Rusev uh that guy had the Mex- that was Mexican who drive who drove a white car when he was in WWE and Kevin Owens. So you can guess who was at number nine. I'm not going to say his name. I can't be arsed. He's a dick. Uh, so allegedly, the, allegedly the pride of Mexico. Yeah, allegedly him. But enough about him. We will round off the show. I'll ask you both to tell me what your favourite moment was from his career and if you could. And if it wasn't a match, if you could outline what you thought his favourite match, your favourite match of his time was, uh, Grant, I'll go with you first. What were you going with? For me, the favourite match, it's it's always going to be the um, the the one against Cody where he absolutely battered them senseless. That was just it. It was so beautiful to watch, and it kind of seeing like sort of Brody Lee coming on as the exalted one. That generally, like that final run with AEW, it's it's one of my favourite things. Um, and even though this one doesn't directly involve him, also the tribute show that AEW put on afterwards to celebrate the life of Brody Lee, that was one of the most beautiful things. Only ever watched it once. Cried like a little bitch. Oh, didn't, think could I could watch, didn't think I could watch it again because it's just too hard. I don't think you could. There's, I can't, I struggled to re-watch, I mean that would be up there, I struggled to re-watch the Eddie Guerrero special in 2005. That was a bad, that was one. Uh, and the Owen Hart one. Their ones are quite hard to watch, so if you're, they are pretty much your heartbreak tribute episodes. But uh, that tribute episode is really touching, and it's also good to have still incorporate uh, Brody's son in there as well. And you know, his wife is working behind the scenes as well with the kind of outside the ring work as well, the charity stuff from AW, which is quite good as well. Uh, Dave, what have you got? Well, we've already mentioned it earlier on, but I still have a soft spot for that two out of three falls at Battleground 2014 against the Usos. Like, not only did it highlight Harper and Rowan as a very legitimate tag team, but I think that was uh, Brody Lee's sort of breakout moment as an individual competitor at the same time. 
and that's when I really started paying attention to you know what could what could this guy be capable of and you know luckily you know it looked like there was a bit of a bit of a direction for him when he won the Intercontinental title as well but I don't know ever since then it just sort of the rug got pulled out from under him but the best moment I think was you know as Grant mentioned everybody coming together and explaining how brilliant John Huber was behind the Brody Lee character and I mean I knew he was a respected talent behind the scenes but I never realised to the extent of how much people looked up to him and admired him it it really was a heartwarming moment to see and obviously them retiring the original TNT championship to be held by Brody Jr it, it's moments like this that it really encapsulates how influential he was in the wrestling industry. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, some fantastic moments there. I think match-wise, I can't look past. Um, I know uh, singles match. I still love the Cody one. That's a that's brilliant. But all-time general matches. That's still the six-man elimination chamber. Shield versus Wyatt Family. It's one of my mm-hmm. one, of, one of my favorite matches of all time. Can't not include it in this particular one uh, moments wise it's uh, yeah if I'm looking more WWE's side of it I really loved uh, when he returned at the Royal Rumble in 2017 I thought it was great he got such a good pop he should have got more from it uh, actually in another match as well the, the ladder match at uh, TLC 2014 as mm-hmm. epic Dave we watched that live at Walkabout didn't we we did yeah it was a Oh, was a banging match actually. Um, was that not the one as well where uh, Ambrose and Wyatt main evented? Oh yeah, and the, the screen exploded. Oh, I mean that main event literally blew up in their face. Ah uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 a it's a classic WWE thing. They have a really good opening match and they fuck the main event. <laughs> I mean, case in point, WrestleMania 34. Yeah, but yeah. That has been it. We've tried our best to go through the career of Luke Harper, Brody Lee back there. Unfortunately, say this is near enough one year since he unfortunately passed, so we've done our best to kind of look back at his memory very fondly. Uh, so, yeah, that has been our show for this particular week here in the SSR. Uh, our feature content continues as we go through December. This is our second last, the second, hi, this is the second show. We've done in December. Uh, we've got three more feature shows to come this year. Uh, next week, we're going to be looking at best Wrestle Kingdom matches of all time. I have one of my panelists here who will be on that show. Guess who it is? It's obvious. It's not Dave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we'll be doing that. We've also got the top 10 of 2021 show, which I've never seen David Campbell more excited. And as you guys know, if you've seen David Campbell doing the draft, he gets very excited about a lot of things. So this is quite surprising to see him excited about more things than his potential victory, even though he's 20 points off of top spot. Uh, and we've also got our Christmas special this year, which I don't think has yet been decided. So if you are listening and you want to know what want to helps us select our Christmas special, please do so. Last year we did it on Vissera. I still wanted to do it on Steve Blackman. You know, Grant, Dave, have you got any rest, odd, obscure wrestlers you'd like to see talked about? Jimmy Wang Yang. Since Dave doesn't really understand how important it was, let's go Yoshitatsu. Ah, yeah. Ah, okay. We could talk about Wrestle Kingdom. Was it Wrestle Kingdom 4 or something that he's on? I don't know. (laughs) 
actually quite a good show. You know what? <laughs> Yoshitatsu is actually would be a would be a good show for sure. Uh-huh. As long as we don't talk about uh, Jiro's bowel movements, I'll be pretty happy. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. So yeah, if you've enjoyed the show, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast uh, platform, uh, and also uh, follow us on social media: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Suplex Retweet. We've got so many uh, t- great stuff going on here. We've got ESS R Central, which comes out every week as well. Saturday Draft Live, which comes out on the Saturday, where you can hear about David Campbell's despair this season as he's had an absolute shocker of a start. Sorry, David. Uh, on that particular show. Uh, we've also got our East Meets West uh, content, which Grant and Scott do. We're in Wrestle Kingdom season, so we'll hope we'll be hearing a bit from them in the coming weeks. But uh, I'd like to thank my panel, firstly. Uh, David Totley, thank you. Thank you. Uh, to Grant, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on. Yep. Uh, I've been Steve Wilson, and we will see you next time. There now follows an enthusiastic advertisement for Quiz Showdown. Hello guys, welcome to Quiz Showdown. I'm Daniel Campbell and in the show you're going to see the members of the Eat Sleep Suplex retweet team go through a very strange quiz. We don't know what the heck's going on with it but you're going to have to watch to find out. Go check out on the YouTube channel now. That was an enthusiastic advert for Quiz Showdown. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.